This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Bright Focus Chats. Today's topic is low vision services, getting the help you need. Our guests today are Dr. Belinda Weinberg and Mr. Sean Curry from the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington. Let's uh, turn to our guests. We'll start, uh, Mr. Sean Curry, you want to tell us what you do and what your organization does? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Michael, and thank you, Bright Focus, for having us here today. Um, so I'm Sean, and I'm the program coordinator at the Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington. Uh, we go by POB for short, so we will say POB the rest of the way to make everyone's lives easier. Um, and we're dedicated to the improvement and preservation of sight, and we do this mostly through providing services, education, and different advocacy. And we're focused in the D.C. metropolitan region, which includes the district as well as suburban Maryland, which is Montgomery and Prince George's County, and Northern Virginia, which are Alexandria City and Arlington and Fairfax counties. Um, Today we're talking about low vision, and the two main services we provide for low vision are, one, our POB VIP Vision Resource Network, where we provide resources, information, and education. Uh, and the goal of that is to provide an opportunity to remain independent and maintain your quality of life even with severe vision loss. And the second service that we provide for those with low vision is our low vision learning centers. We have three locations, one in Bethesda, one in the district in D.C., and also one in Alexandria. And what we have there are low vision specialists like Dr. Weinberg here who create personalized rehabilitation programs and is also provide a chance for those with low vision to test or receive specific training on different visual aids and low vision technology. Well, great. Dr. Weinberg, welcome. Thank and you. Uh, what do you do as a low vision specialist, and what is low vision? Yes. So um, low vision refers to when someone has vision loss that cannot be improved with conventional glasses, contact lenses, medical treatment, or surgery. So when there's loss of vision and you're unable to perform the activities of daily living or hobbies that, that you'd like to, Um, that's where a low vision specialist comes in. So if the vision cannot be improved with these other methods, we want to use the vision that's remaining to allow you to accomplish the things that you want to and need to do on a a daily basis. Um, So as a low vision specialist, we see patients who have a number of um, eye conditions from macular degeneration, glaucoma, um, diabetic retinopathy, and we aim to find personalized solutions for the um, specific goals that a patient has. That's great. A lot of people use the term legally blind or legal blindness. Is that the same as, as low vision, or could you talk about any differences that might, there might be? Sure. So there is overlap between low vision and legal blindness. Legal blindness refers to a very specific um, definition, meaning that you can see 20 200 or nothing better than 2200. And as referenced, what we consider normal vision or you know ideal vision would be 2020. So 2200 would be about 10 times worse than that. Or that you only have 20 degrees of peripheral of uh, vision. Your visual field is 20 degrees or less. So it's a specific definition of um, vision that qualifies you for certain programs, either statewide or, or federal, um, to be legally blind. But low vision doesn't necessarily, you can have low vision without being legally blind. So we actually prefer, um, it's best when we see patients 
before they've become legally blind. Because even mild or moderate vision loss that may not have reached the legal blindness criteria yet can impact people's day-to-day uh, -day life. So there is overlap, certainly, but low vision really is when your vision is not able to, you're not able to use your vision for the, the things that you need to do. Well, great. The two of you provide such such incredible service to the community. Just wondering, how did each of you end up where you are? Sure, so I, I can start. Um, so I became interested in optometry, looking into a field within the health profession where you're working with, with people. Um, I have, my grandfather was an optometrist, so on a personal note, that's how I came into the field. But more specifically, I became interested in low vision rehabilitation, a specialty within optometry, um, upon my exposure to it in optometry school. I found that low vision optometry and re rehabilitation really allows us to look beyond just the eyeballs and look at a, a person as a whole and help them in um, in the situations where we're unable to save the save the vision the best that we can. So I like that aspect of low vision rehabilitation is really considering the person as a as a whole. Great, Sean. Yeah, so uh, I originally came to POB as a public health intern. Um, I recently completed my master's in public health, so um, I completed a needs assessment for POB when we first started out. Um, so a needs assessment, for those who don't know, it's kind of a little bit of a data dump and getting to understand what your community is like as well as where your programs stand uh, specifically to the environment you're at and how we can possibly improve them over time. Uh, so after completing that, I was brought on full-time um, as a program coordinator. So. As a program coordinator at POB, I do a lot of uh, program development coordination, with, as the name says, and I also do uh, lots of research, anything uh, data-related, um, and also lots of public outreach like what we do today. Great. Yeah. In terms of understanding your audience, I was wondering, Dr. Weinberg, is there a common reaction people have when they first learn uh, about that they have low vision? It varies for sure, um, and the reaction that we get in terms of when you get a diagnosis of a condition that is known to have progression or have vision loss does um, vary, of course, by personality, but also age of onset. We find that um, children that have um, eye conditions that cause vision loss, often it's sort of all they know, so it can be an easier um, easier adjustment than someone who is older and develops a condition that causes vision loss down the line. It's much more difficult to relearn how to do um, many of the tasks. Sometimes you have to relearn how to do everything when you develop a condition, you know, 80 years after having vision one way. So certainly we see a wide range of um, emotional reactions. Um, some people are angry. Why, you know, why did this happen to me? Sort of all those stages. Um, sadness, you know, it's, you're losing a lot there. So we do find that the success of low vision rehabilitation often is connected with your ability to cope with the vision loss itself and be open to what may be involved with the rehabilitation. Hi, this could be for, for one or both of you. How do people ask for help? That would seem like for a lot of people, I come from generations of stoic, independent New Englanders, like how do people... Mm -hmm. Your organization provides such wonderful services, but is there a hurdle that people have to climb over to to get to the point where uh, the two of you can provide help, or what sort of you know that that process like? Absolutely, I know on my end, and then you can talk about the patient specifically. Mm -hmm. 
I would do a lot of with our support groups and our resource <coughs> networks. A lot of the time, there's a huge disconnect because you're afraid to admit that you have a problem, or you're not real. You're in denial that there really is an issue, and even when you do accept it at first, you have no idea how to communicate that with even loved ones, let alone the medical community. Um, so there's a huge hurdle that has to kind of be overrun, and there's a lot of frustration that comes along with that as well. Um, like. One of the top things we always hear about is like, well, when do I know when to stop driving? And a lot of the times, you don't want to admit that it's time to stop driving. Mm -hmm. so. On the patient side, I'll let Yeah, on the, on the patient side, in terms of um, finding help, it, that can be a challenge for some of the reasons that Sean mentioned as well. Sometimes people don't know where, where to look. They may be seeing their ophthalmologist or glaucoma specialist, retina specialist. They may see them every month, every couple months. But um, a lot of times, the, the aim of those specialists is to preserve the vision and treat the eye condition. So sometimes it um, just time-wise, not that the ophthalmologist isn't caring, but sometimes the um, impact that that may have on a person's life can get uh, pushed aside or forgotten. So it does often take that you as a, as a patient have to advocate for yourself and look for these resources. Um, ideally, um, opto um, optometrists and ophthalmologists will, will refer um, patients to these services. But again, they do, the, they do have to be ready um, to accept and be prepared for it. Yeah, that. it must be, must be very challenging. Uh, how, I know that, as you mentioned, uh, your organization works in the Washington uh, area. Are there similar type of programs uh, offered in other parts of the nation? Yeah, absolutely. There's several uh, different nonprofit organizations. Um, a lot of them are local-based or metropolitan-based, uh, and there's also rural ones as well. Um, and they do a lot of the similar stuff that we do. Um, off the top of my head, I know of at least two. There's one in San Diego who have a very popular Twitter page, <laughs> funny enough. And uh, the other one is an organization in Chicago called Second Sense. And we've actually worked with them and consulted with them um, and other with our resource network and support groups, and they're a best practices community as well. So if you're in the Chicago area, you should definitely check them out if you're, if you're having any vision issues. I also would recommend um, the AFB website, American um, Foundation for the Blind, I believe it is. Yes. Um, the American Foundation for the Blind, they actually have a resource um, lookup by, by state or by region, so you can look for similar similar groups to the Prevention of Blindness Society. Um, oh, every state also has a um, branch of their uh, state government for rehabilitation and disability, so that can also be a good place to look for resources for those with visual impairment. This is a very broad question, but the services you talk about, um, support groups and rehabilitation, does that tend to be covered by Medicare or Medicaid or private insurance? I know it's a very broad question, but I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the affordability and access for people. Sure. So the, our resource network and support groups, completely free to anyone that wants to come. Uh, most of the time, we even provide lunch for you, so <laughs> that's a good way to get people to come. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and regarding the uh, yeah. medical stuff. So in terms of um, low vision rehabilitation, uh, the examination um, for a low vision exam we do accept medical insurance for that. Different places that offer low vision rehabilitation typically will bill through medical insurance as well. So if you have Medicare um, or any other health insurance, the examination would go towards your um, health insurance. 
the unfortunate part is that glasses as well as low vision aids such as magnifiers or other um, devices are not covered by, by insurance. So that can certainly be a hurdle to people that getting what they need. Um, again, these state, um, state agencies, for example, in um, Washington, D.C., is the D.C. Rehabilitation Services Administration, or in Maryland, Department of Rehabilitation Services doors often can help those um, who may not be able to pay for devices out of pocket, can help um, in allowing people to obtain those. Madam Dr. Weinberg, a few minutes ago you mentioned uh, I think very clearly the different stages that people go through, different emotions. Is there a um, kind of a one area that's like the biggest struggle for people to, to work through, and I guess it could be in your support groups as well, Sean? Yeah, so um, I'd say that it's a very personal, um, individual um, aspect to, to deal with. A lot of the most common things that we hear that people are having difficulty with is reading, um, whether that's you know, pleasure reading or reading the things that you need to read that you may not even realize on a daily basis, you know, mail, bills. So that's one of the more common, um, you know, issues that people are having, but it can be very personal. Um, some people may love to play music, so that's the hardest thing for, for them. Yeah, and another issue that we often see, I know, in my support groups is the fact that a lot of times when you lose your vision and you're starting to lose a little bit of independence, like I can't drive to the supermarket anymore, it puts a lot of stress they feel on loved ones, especially significant others you'll hear all the time, or, you know, Grandpa, he can't get around anymore and Grandma's got to drive him anywhere. And there's a lot of guilt that's unnecessary that they don't know how to communicate and properly talk about, like, this is what's going on, this is my new reality, but I can still do this, I can still do that. So it, it's really important to remain optimistic and to enforce optimism for when you're losing your vision. So when you, um, you talk about the, the challenges of either being a caregiver or mm -hmm. having care provided for you, you talk about the, the communication challenges. What, what, in your opinion, in your experience, works best? Like, How can someone best communicate to a family or friend that they need help? That, that could is a kind of a potentially a, a tricky conversation. Do you have tips in your support groups for how to work on that? Or? Yeah, we have a couple tips. Um, one thing is whenever you go to the doctor, ask your significant other, a loved one, friend to come with you. Because then not only is it going to reinforce the fact that you're getting the information that you need to know and you're asking the questions you need to ask, but it's also providing the opportunity for your loved one or significant other or friend to be able to really understand like where your vision's at. And it kind of informally, formally, um, opens that dialogue for the loved ones, and then it's just important to you know talk. It's tough, but you got to sit down and just talk about like this is. I know I can't do this. I know I can't do that. So let's say like I can't drive because I'm blind. However, I can still get around town. I can still make a phone call to get. For in DC, we have Metro Access, for example, to be able to get somewhere. So it's just opening the dialogue about like what can we still do together. What do I need your help on every once in a while? Well, it's interesting. Kind of as far as when you talk about that in a support group, like I think everybody knows the term support group, but it might be a little might be a little intimidating. Or yeah. how? What is the structure of a support group? Like the size of the group? What does the group do? You know, how frequently does it meet? What do you talk about? You just sort of kind of pull back the curtain on what, yeah. what a support group is. Yeah. So, um, and we've been using the term support group a lot, and we call them 
vision resource groups because a lot of the times the term support kind of has a negative connotation for people and it kind of make it might push people away yeah. but um so we've kind of focused a lot more on resources as well so and we want to empower independence as well, as well as provide the resources to maintain your quality of life um so typical meeting will be it's anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half some of them are 2 hours long and it depends on the group that we're targeting what time of day it is. Um, so if it's an older population, it tends to be more in the middle of the day because they're not working in the normal 9 to 5. But if we have a working class age, then we're going a little bit later in the evening as well. Um, and these groups do typically have a, a guest speaker. However, that's not required every single time. And they come in and speak about different topics related to low vision. Uh, this can range from different technology and like your smartphone and tablet and different applications that you can use on there uh, to be able to make life a little bit easier. Um, and we also have different transportation options, in-home services, and we also have doctors periodically come in and discuss anything related to the eye that you might want to learn about, whether it be research, um, glaucoma, um, anything like that. Um, even floaters, people hear, hear about all the time because everyone gets cataracts eventually. Everyone wants to hear about, well, what do I do with these floaters? So there's a brief discussion, um, and then after that we open up Q&A for the opportunity for everyone to kind of ask the questions they want to ask. And then there's a chance at the end to be able to really connect with one another and just, like, talk one-on-one -on -one about, like, let's, uh, John over here, I think, you know, I've I've been really having an issue with, my oven and I'm not able to cook my meat my food as well anymore. And then Sally is like, oh, well, I've done this and I'm able to now do this. So opening that line of communication and really forming a bond and social bonding is very important to us and that's something that we try to stress with our support groups. Yeah. Well, that's great. There's got to be such fears and anxieties at the root of this. And I know, um, you know, Dr. Weinberg, you talked uh, about driving and that that's something that we've talked about in previous Bright Focus chats mm -hmm. and it just seems like such a emotionally intense visceral topic how do you do it how do you how do you navigate such a difficult topic in, in your uh, in your practice yeah it, it's not easy especially um, I think driving has such a um, impact the way you said because it is directly tied with independence um, if you lose the ability to drive especially in a lot of places in the, the country you're losing your ability to you know, be independent and go the places that you need to go when you want to go. So it's definitely not something that we take lightly when we have to inform individuals that their vision no longer qualifies them to, to drive. Um, and that, um, you know, people have different reactions to that. Luckily, in the D.C. area, we do have a lot of good public transportation, but that's not always the case everywhere in the country. Um, so it is very um, beneficial to reach out to people in the community, you know, either through groups like this, through, through your doctors, to find alternative ways to, to get around. Um, and that's improving all the time as well. Um, with ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft and even those who aren't um, smartphone us users, there's something called GoGo Grandparent, which um, the uh, you know a, a tech savvy family member can set up for an individual, and they can just use their regular landline or regular phone to call. Jitterbug too. Jitterbug is another good um, you know phone for people. So um, the the driving it is really a discussion. It's you know self reflection, but also a conversation with your family members and your doctors to determine if it is safe to continue driving or not. Mm -hmm. No, I appreciate it. it, it Glad to mention the, the the other people in the family. How 
you know, when families get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas or the, the religious holidays in the spring, how does one initiate that topic about a person that they that they're close to? I mean, I, what's the what's the icebreaker on that? Right. Topic? Yeah. yeah, and I don't know that there's any one. You know, it depends. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if there's any one good way. Um, and sometimes it is good to do in the presence of, um, you know, a managing doctor. So mm -hmm. that's sometimes a conversation that I have um, in a low vision exam. Um, like Sean was saying, with the visits to the ophthalmologist, it's good to have family members present. We um, think that even more so with the low vision exam, so that family members can see what um, their family member with vision loss is able to see, what they're not able to see, and really kind of understand their situation a little bit better. So those difficult topics, um, even though we as doctors don't necessarily want to be in the middle of it, it can be helpful to get that sort of objective um, sense by having them present for that discussion. And, and what if it's you? Like if, if you are questioning your own ability to drive, mm -hmm. um, what should you do? Yeah, that's a great question too. So what's interesting um, is there's actually places that are rehabilitation for driving specifically. So in the Maryland area, there's a place in Frederick called Rehabilitation of Frederick where they do have um, driver rehabilitation for those with low vision or with reduced vision. The first thing is if you meet the legal requirements for your state, and every state does have different visual acuity and visual field requirements as to whether it's legal to drive. But if you're in those legal requirements and still not sure if you're safe to drive, you can have on-the-road assessments at these rehabilitation, um, either low vision rehabilitation driving schools to determine your things like reaction time, your ability to, um, you know, detect obstacles. So there are so, some ways to get a professional's mm -hmm. insight to that. Mm -hmm. Great. This is this is for for the both of you. When a person that's either at your practice or your support group, when they fear that they're going to go blind, uh, what do you say to that? I guess one or both of you on that. So. Um, uh, on our end, I feel that that's one of the most valuable things that we can provide as a low vision, um, as a low vision optometrist, by having the understanding of the disease process as well as the rehabilitation process. We can educate people about their condition. So, for example, people with macular degeneration, they often fear going blind. You know, everything going dark, and that that term blind does have a wide range of, of meanings. Um, but people do fear that they're going to lose all perception of light and everything's going to go dark. So being able to explain the disease process itself and explain the anatomy can often people put people's worries at, at ease because we can explain that the macula is only a small area of the retina, and with macular degeneration alone, it won't impact your peripheral vision. So that will always remain intact with macular degeneration. Um, so being able to explain the eye condition, the eye anatomy, can, um, can really help people with those fears. Um, in some cases, we know that conditions are um, progressive, like retinitis pigmentosa, for example, can cause complete loss, loss of all vision. But what we um, find helpful with that is knowing all the resources that are out there. So if we know that someone's going to be continuously losing vision, we plan for that in our um, rehabilitation. So if we know that we can't rely on vision throughout our life, um, maybe we start to teach Braille or teach 
orientation and mobility, how to get around using a white cane if we know that that's coming in the future. So really being able to prepare and understand what may happen with your vision is very helpful for people. Right, do you want to add to that, Sean? Uh, yeah, so a lot of times at support group meetings, uh, someone will say, like, I'm really afraid that I'm going to go blind, I'm going to let everyone down, stuff like that. And a lot of the times there's some another group member there that will almost immediately kind of take them under their wing and just say, it's fine. It's, it's not the end of the world. You can still do this. You can still do that. Here's how. Um, and mo more often than not, there's also a fear of, like, I can't work anymore. You can still work. Uh, there's different organizations that you can contact, like your local rehabilitation or disability um, state organization, and they will help you be able to get the different adaptations that you need. Um, and you can still work more often than not. Well, that's great. Now, a lot of our audience uh, uh, members are at different stages of macular degeneration. Uh, uh, Dr. Weinberg, do you have any tips for um, what they can do moving forward as far as diet and lifestyle and, and exercise and mm -hmm. medications? Like, sort of, what does somebody do from this point forward? Right, right. So when you've been diagnosed with macular degeneration, Probably one of the most important things is following up with your retina specialist as, as scheduled um, to monitor for any changes. But in terms of things that you can do on your own to reduce the progression, um, smoking uh, is the biggest risk factor for macular degeneration. So whether you have macular degeneration or have a family history and you're someone that smokes, um, you know, you definitely, though it's not an easy thing to do, certainly, um, cutting back and eventually um, cessation is the, the best thing for reducing the risk of macular degeneration. Um, the other thing is eating green leafy vegetables like kale, spinach, collard greens that have antioxidants called lutein and zeaxanthine. Uh, fatty fishes that have omega-3, those are all dietary um, modifications that you can make to help preserve the health of the macula, as well as vitamins um, or supplements called AREDS2 from the age-related eye disease study. And your ophthalmologist can tell you if you're at a stage of macular degeneration where that's been proven to slow progression. That's good. Because I always find the supplement aisle at a supermarket <laughs> or a pharmacy is sort of overwhelming and yes. maybe a little bit of the, the Wild West. So mm -hmm. uh, could you explain a little bit more about that ARID supplement sure. so people know where to, what to steer toward? Sure. And um, one thing that I forgot to mention before I um, speak about the, the AREDS is also wearing uh, sunglasses. So having UV protection, 100% UV protection is also very helpful for the macula. Um, in terms of the AREDS uh, 2, if that's been recommended by your retina specialist or by your optometrist, ophthalmologist, um, at the store, the bottle itself will say AREDS2. If it doesn't say that and says, um, you know, vitamins for eye health but does not specifically say AREDS2, it may still have components that are very helpful for the, the eye health, but it's not the specific um, makeup that ha was proven with this large study, the AREDS2 study. Okay. I know some people who have macular degeneration receive treatment via in, an injection in the eye, and that to the average person walking down the street sounds extremely unpleasant. Yep. So what if you tell us uh, about that anxiety and what, mm -hmm. you know, how people and their physicians should, should address that? Yes, yeah, so um, it's, it sounds very scary to have an injection in the eye, certainly, but um, these injections really have kind of revolutionized how we treat uh, macular degeneration. Um, in the past, if you've had what's called the wet 
form of macular degeneration where there's blood vessel growth underneath the retina. Um, we didn't have much in the way to treat that, so that would cause large, um, what we call scotomas or blind spots in the central vision. These injections, though they sound very unpleasant, um, you can ask people that have had, had them. In most cases, they don't, um, you don't have pain, the eye is numbed, and you may have some effects afterwards, but you know, certainly by later in the day or the next day, the eye, eye feels okay. And it does really help to preserve vision with macular degeneration and sometimes even cause improvement if there is fluid or blood underneath the retina. So um, as unpleasant as they are, they, the alternative is unfortunately more significant vision loss. So if injections have been recommended by, by your retina specialist, um, it's likely because the benefits outweigh the, the risk or the discomfort of those injections. Mm -hmm. oh, great. Thank you. Appreciate that. And so another question. Uh, in your support groups, are there some uh, techniques that, that people have for daily life in the community? I want to go to the grocery store. I want to order lunch somewhere. And, and how do you have tips that you share for sort of navigating daily life? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, and part of the low vision rehab that you do is about activities of daily living as well um, at our low vision learning center. But with our support groups, um, we always we like to have speakers come in periodically and talk about um, if it's a different service, like a food service, mm -hmm. like you said, and things like that. They come in and talk about like what they can do, and this is more locally. Um, however, there's always going to be if there's somewhere locally, if there's a local group here, there's probably a local group everywhere. Um, so we have them come in and speak about that. Uh, in in the D.C. metropolitan area, there's a lot of different transportation services that will, will provide free ride-sharing services for you to be able to go for a doctor's appointment. And then there's also different ride volunteer ride-sharing services that will freely drive you to the supermarket if you need to do that or um, if you want to go to the park or something like that. They'll do that for you, and it's volunteer-based. Um, and that's actually a lot of them come from what's called the vill villages, which is the village mm -hmm. movement. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how aware you all are. Of yeah, that, it's great, great, great concept. Yeah, so they have a lot of ride sharing services as well for that. And would something like that help, like within the store? What I'm trying to look at the being, you know, the the, the pica font on the ingredients. Yeah, label yeah, or yeah. Something. I mean, do you have suggestions for how people navigate situations like that? Absolutely. So if you don't have a magnifier already, there are several. If you have a smartphone. Several there are several free apps that you or applications that you can download from your app store. If you don't know how to navigate that, ask the person, ask someone that has full vision, and they will happily do it for you. Everyone knows how to do it who has used their iPhone before. And these different apps are able to either scan a barcode and tell you exactly what it is, or it'll be a magnifier as well. That's great. Yeah. We're uh, you know just time for a couple more questions, but I was wondering. Uh, Dr. Weinberg, a lot of our audience um, have children and grandchildren. Any advice that they can pass down to their kids or grandkids about uh, about healthy vision? Yeah, so um, I think anyone that has vision loss and has family members um, would tell you that you shouldn't take your, your vision for granted. Um, Though it's important to, of course, have yearly eye exams, uh, protect the eyes from the sun, have a good, healthy diet. But in terms of um, ways to uh, navigate the world, it's also an important message to show to younger individuals that um, any form of vision loss can be, um, we can compensate for that or overcome any vision loss to still have a good 
um, quality of life and independence. So that's an important you know message alongside of the prevention of, of eye disease for younger individuals. Well, great. And um, it was sort of one operational question, I get to kind of conclude your remarks. Um, I know a lot of our audience um, is uh, served in the military. Do, do the veterans, does the Veterans Administration offer services similar to, to what uh, your organization does? That's a great question. Um, so I actually I did spend a year at a um, VA hospital in Connecticut, and so the VA system does have a lot of low vision rehabilitation for, for veterans. It's a really great resource. So if you have served in the military and have um, vision loss, I would strongly recommend speaking to someone at the VA system. A lot of the devices that I spoke about that unfortunately um, medical insurance won't cover, at the VA system you're um, able to get these and with, without as, as much of an issue. Um, there's even in the VA system through, in each region, there's a inpatient program where you can stay for about six weeks to really learn how to do um, those activities of daily living as well as tasks that you want to do to really kind of relearn how to do the things you need to when you have vision loss. Um, in this area, the, the one that serves Washington, D.C., and um, most of the East Coast is in Connecticut. So. Um, it's worth going to your local VA and um, working with the outpatient services for low vision rehabilitation, or if you need more extensive care, even the inpatient rehabilitation services. Well, great. It seems like there's a, a wide range of resources, um, uh, federal and state and local, and it's certainly the the, um, the philanthropic efforts that uh, the two organization does. Just kind of my final question to the two of you. In your experience, when you think about the work they do, are you hopeful for the future in terms of um, how uh, Americans deal with vision loss? I mean, sort of, do you, what's your sort of overall opinion about the about the future of the of the work you do and the services you provide? So, um, Sean, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll start. So, I'm really optimistic about it because we're we're moving more and more into a technology-based age, and it's becoming easy. There are more complicated, but there's also easier and easier ways that the technology today makes living with low vision easier. Um, everyone had, well not everyone, but many people have iPhones now and there's so many free different applications that you can use and learn how to use. There's even VoiceOver which is made for people who are totally blind to be able to use your iPhone with no problem at all. So stuff like that is going to become more and more popular and easier to be able to use for mm -hmm. anyone. And that's going to make even, so if you are losing your vision, it's going to make life even easier. Mm -hmm. Um, on top of that, I think that the awareness campaigns have been growing more and more, and we're really focusing on that. And the need for providing and also raising awareness and advocacy of the resources available are becoming more and more popular. We actually, at POB, have targeted that as a major issue that we want to address in the area, and we're developing a resource guidebook to be able to do that as well in the specific um, D.C. metropolitan area. So you're able to find anything from transportation to technology to whatever state resources or different activities that you want to do, like there's blind hockey, for example. Um, so if you want to play hockey and you can't see, you can still do it. There's different ways. So very, very optimistic. Well, well that's great. Dr. Weinberg, when you think about the future of uh, people with vision uh, challenges, what do you think? I think that Sean stole my answer. Which <laughs> that, um, Sorry about that. That's okay. So um, same two things um, bring me optimism as well, which is um, the accessibility of technology. 
Um, so even those without uh, vision loss are um, having phones and having computers is much more part of our daily life. And luckily, these devices come out of the package with a lot of accessibility features to them. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of ways to for people to continue working, to continue reading, doing all the things that they want to and like to do um, with the use of this technology. And it also makes um, it more affordable as well. Like Sean mentioned, there's a number of phone applications that have no cost, and those can be much more available to people than some of the low vision devices that we typically rely on. So technology is definitely um, changing the game for the better, and I think awareness um, is increasing as well, making everything more accessible, not just phones and computers, but um, we want to make the whole you know, world more accessible, and so I think that's improving too. Well, great. So I want to thank uh, our guests today and the Prevention of Blindness Society just really do such such amazing work in the, in the community, and, and it's a real pleasure to, for Bright Focus to partner with you. And the information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.